the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNEW presents... New Focus on Wealth with Certified Financial Planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton with EP Wealth. I'm Rob Black with EP Wealth. Chad, let's discuss what it means to invest in the S&P 500. What does it mean to invest in the S&P 500? Is it 500 stocks? Is it diversification? Can we buy and go away? What does it mean to you? Well, it, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, and I think that it's something that people hear about on the news all the time. Mm-hmm. The S&P 500 and the Dow and NASDAQ, oddly enough, they, they all share similar. The, the, a lot of stocks are in all three. Um, the S&P 500, the name in itself is a little bit odd because even though there's 500 of the largest companies in America involved, it's a market cap weighted index. So there's a lot more money that goes into, say, the top 25 to 50 companies than the 500th largest company in America. Um, now, diversified in sectors, yes, there's 11 sectors of the S&P 500. But in terms of, is it Really, you've got a small piece of 500 companies, not as much as you think. Right now, the S&P 500 is 6.8% Apple, 6.5% Microsoft, 4.3% Alphabet, 3.9% Amazon, and, and 2.3% Tesla. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's become a very tech-heavy index because technology companies have done extremely well over the last decade. And so they are, many tech companies are the largest companies in America. If we look back just to 2011, and you notice I didn't say any oil companies in that? Mm-hmm. Well, in 2011, the largest weighting was ExxonMobil at 3.6%. Wow. Um, Apple was half at 3.3%. Chevron, 1.9%. IBM, boy, there's, there's, there's a dog, right? <laughs> that, that's been a while. 1.9% and Microsoft 1.7% versus you know 6.5% now. So you could argue that it's more tech heavy and less diversified now than it's been in a long time. Hmm. I'm looking at those names, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, or that are current weightings. And I'd almost say those are more things that we use in our life every day, whereas ExxonMobil and Chevron from 10 years ago was kind of big energy, kind of a different economy. Um, Interesting. Are most people overweight in large cap stocks because of this phenomenon that you're mentioning of the overweightness in the indexing trend? Yeah, I mean, investing in the S&P 500 has been very successful. Large cap and large cap growth have been the best place to be really in the last decade. Um, So more money goes into it. When people look at their 401k returns on their funds, they tend to add more and more money into the stuff that's already done well. 
um, and they hear about the S&P 500 all the time and how hard it is for most stock pickers to beat it. So more and more money goes into it. It kind of pushes more and more money into those stocks. But at the same time, I mean, I've got an iPhone. I use Microsoft products every day. Mm-hmm. I, I use Google for searches every day. There's way too many boxes from Amazon on my porch every day. <laughs> and now I own a Tesla, so I'm spending way less money on gas. So <laughs> you know, I, I get it. That's, that's just where the world is going. You know, Technology, healthcare, science, it's all coming together. And that's why these companies are expanding in value. Quick question on your Tesla. Are you paying more for insurance than you were previously? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I haven't really sat down and analyzed the overall cost of it yet. Um, it, yeah. it's, it's fun to drive, though. We'll say that. But What's interesting nice. is my wife drove the Tesla and she got hit by something. And in California, you only need $5,000 of damage to other vehicles. And I was like, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> anyway, make sure you have the insurance uh, levels correct. Moving back to the SP 500, international hasn't really helped out a lot recently, Chad. Um, at times, it's been perceived as very sexy, very um, international, uh, third world countries becoming uh, economic powerhouses. Should we really pay attention to the efficient market frontier and put 20% into international and aggressive portfolios? Yeah, and that's something we all learn about that was really popular in the early 90s. This is okay. If you're trying to achieve a certain yep. rate of return, how should you asset allocate between large, small, mid, international, emerging market, bonds, cash? Uh, alternatives, even like commodities and real estate, how should you allocate to, to achieve that rate of return with the least amount of risk possible? And, um, you know, my son that graduated with a degree in personal finance and, and basically a, you know, big time into statistics, math and physics, oddly enough, <laughs> argues against that math that was used quite a bit. And, you know, and he's, he's got the last 10 years on his side because international hasn't really helped increase returns, nor is it kind of mitigated volatility. But that's a small window in investing. When, when I look at investing, I think of year periods of you know, 15 to 20 years plus. And if we look 20 years back, globally diversified portfolios outperformed just domestic portfolios. So back to the, the first question, since there's so many people in the S&P 500, they, most people are overweight in large cap stocks, large cap growth especially. And they're missing out on small cap value, which would have been a great buy in, you know, during COVID, the first part of COVID. A uh, lot of money going into international development now because they, they, the returns have lagged, yet the valuations are there in terms of PE ratio and revenue growth. And people are just waiting for emerging markets to kind of have a, a real big buy signal. Um, there, was, there was kind of a big buy signal um, you know, early 21. And a lot of money started moving in there, but then COVID came back and, and some political issues. And so um, it, it's probably a good time if you're missing international to start adding some in your 401k on a, a weekly basis and buy while it's cheaper than the US essentially. We've got about a minute and a half left. Back in the 1990s, when I got into this industry, diversification had a funny phrase, diversification. People wanted to only own tech stocks. Is diversification more important as you're building wealth or as you enter retirement? It's actually as you enter retirement. Um, Because if you get overweighted in something and you're younger, you're 20, 30, even 40 years old, and you still got 20 years left to retire, you don't necessarily want to just sell it, especially if it's a taxable account and pay taxes on it. You're adding all the time so you can fix your asset allocation with where you're directing your contributions to your 401ks and your Roths. Um. And then, you know, obviously a lot of wealth has been built in concentrated stock positions for the employer that you work for. And, and, but as you get to retirement, it's not about, 
It's more about participating in the upside and limiting downside risk because that money now has to last as long as you do and you're not feeding the portfolio anymore. So you have to make sure that you're more diversified with the correct amount of safe money um, and not overexposed to one stock or one sector because your retirement depends on it now. Chat, there seems to be this great resignation at the same time as a large number of baby boomers retiring. Interesting. Telling somebody that they're okay to carry a lot of responsibility. Um, what do you need to feel confident to tell people, you can quit your job. It's okay. Don't stress. Yeah. If, if I'm going to have that responsibility of saying, yes, it's okay that you can go in and and, and tell them you're leaving and you have enough assets to live on for the rest of your life. <laughs> There's a lot of testing that goes in, into that for us to feel confident. And, and believe it or not, I say, no, you're not ready um, quite a bit. And because, okay. you know, people, there might be a, a variety of reasons. I mean, one could just be a life plan. Like, what are you going to do? Um, a lot of people just aren't mentally ready to go from working 10, 12 hour days to I, I'm retired and, and they enjoy themselves for a month or two and then they're bored out of their mind and they lack social interaction. So you have to have a life plan. The next step is, is once you have that plan and you know what's going to motivate you and fulfill you in life, you've got to have a very clear list of expenses. Um, so while a lot of my wealthier clients don't track every penny they spend, yep. we have to have at least a framework of what you are spending. And and start from there. Um, and that's some trial and error. And sometimes it takes a year or two to kind of get that dialed in. But then we add in things that you're not thinking about. Like, oh, when you draw money out of that 401k, you got to pay taxes. When you sell that stock, you got to pay capital gains. And most people, their social security, 85% is taxable. Um, so we got to look at all that, a tax plan for their income and which accounts they're drawing from. We got to look at their tax return. And you know, do they have any rentals? What are their deductions? What are their taxes that they're going to pay? Um, if they're married, especially, we've got to do a social security review. When does one spouse take the social security and when does the other spouse take the social security? Do you wait till you're 70? Um, and a big one is, is okay, we've, we've got, maybe we've got what looks like enough money, but do we have enough safe money? We have to set up a portfolio where we know that the stock market's positive 70% of the time and we'll tend to average 10, 11% over 20 plus year periods, but there's those periods of time where it doesn't. And you got to make sure you have enough safe money so you're never selling in a down market. And that means you have to have a good asset allocation and rebalancing plan. And then there's two, once we have, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, those details, Rob. And then two tests to say, you know, wh whether or not you have enough, assuming all of the input is good because it's garbage in, garbage out, right? You got to have good input. But the first one is a linear cash flow test where, you say, do you, based on your expenses, and then we add in all the healthcare costs like Medicare Part B, all the stuff you're not thinking about. <laughs> do you have enough money to last till age 100 after you pay your expenses, your taxes, and your healthcare costs, assuming your expenses go up at 25 to 3% with inflation and assuming only a 5.5% rate of return? Do you have enough to last till 100? If not, at what point are you selling your home and living off of that, right? Yeah. And if you last to that age, then you can go through what's called a Monte Carlo simulation where it takes your existing portfolio and you have to do this right. Most advisors do this wrong, believe it or not, because they don't assume rebalancing and things like that. But a Monte Carlo simulation will take your portfolio and your situation and run it through thousand plus different market scenarios. You know, good times first, bad times later, bad times at first in retirement, uh, good times later, a mix of that, high inflation scenarios, 
low inflation, low interest rates, high interest rates, and, and it puts it through a thousand different scenarios. So if you have a really good withdrawal strategy, safe money, linear cash flow, and you're, and you're above 85% plus on the Monte Carlo simulation in terms of a success rate, then and only then will we say, yep, it's, it looks good to retire. So a lot goes into it. It's interesting that you're bringing up life plan early. I want to go back to that, you know, have a plan for what you do in retirement. One of the things I want to do is open up a B&B or an Airbnb, turn it into a little side business, talk to people from around the world, great location. But that's not free. That's going to be a big chunk of money to pull it off the startup cost. So it's really, really good to think this through, in my opinion. Any thoughts on me owning a B&B? I, I didn't think you liked people, so I don't, I don't <laughs> get that one. <laughs> I've, I've changed. The wealthier I've come in my life, I love people. So, fact, I <laughs> you, just, to, you just stand there and tell them how wealthy you are for about 10, 15 minutes and then move on. Actually, I wrote a letter to a Ticketmaster and thanked them for letting me go to a concert. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Wow. Lord, I'm getting soft. Um, that's a lot of what you just ran through, the Monte Carlo situation, simulation. That's too much for me. It's too intricate. Let's start with the 5.5%. That's a really low rate of stock return compared to the 10 to 11. But I've heard some analysts recently say the last 10 years were glorious. Next 10 years, we'll lose a little bit of luster. Is that what you're implying? Uh, yeah, essentially. And, and I've got a whole you know, seven retirement test podcast that goes really into this. But I mean, here's the deal. If you, if you look at the stock market and you look at 20 plus year rolling periods and mm-hmm. your retirement's 35 plus years, the stocks almost every single 20 year period have averaged 10, 11%. Um, one that's below that is 2000 to 2020. So that's, that's got the great uh, tech bubble burst and it's got the great recession in it. So two of the worst recession or bubble bursts that we've seen in our market history. But over a 20, 30 year period, I'm confident that stocks will average 10, 11%. It's the bonds, Rob, that uh-huh. is the problem. I mean, when I got into the business and you know, over two, almost 29 years ago now, um, bonds were paying three or four times as much interest as they are now. And inflation was at three or four times more, right? So it's more expensive to retire now. You have to have more money because your CDs and your bonds are paying less. And then we look at a period where we had a a low rate environment and mediocre returns like 2007 to 2017 when a globally diversified balanced portfolio averaged about 5.5% because the stock market had a huge dip and then it took until... Uh, depending on how you were allocated, somewhere between 2010 and 2012 to 13 to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we look at that period of time, like what if we go through several of those, you know, one or two of those decades in your retirement? You've, you've got to make sure you can withstand that. It's hard to go back to work when you're 75, 80 years old. And while we're looking at rising rates now, I don't think we're getting back to a 4% treasury yield anytime soon on a 10-year. Um, I think that, you know, the uh, there's a lot of, PPP money that was given out in 2020 to businesses that thought they were going to basically go to zero because of COVID. And then it turned out most of them didn't need it, but they had all this money. And all this money went flying into the economy, creating a bunch of velocity. And that's going to last a couple of years in terms of too, you know, too many dollars chasing too few goods because of the supply chain. And then, it'll, you know, and, and, and then we'll have the wages go up until it reaches a point And Companies will pass on price increases just for a year or two until they find what that limit is. Inflation will slow a bit. And then the US government will realize we have a ton of debt out there. We've got a ton of bonds that we've sold to individuals and to countries. 
we can't allow interest rates to go too high because that's way too hard on our budget deficits. So I don't see, I still see rates being historically low for the next decade, if that makes sense. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcase is always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirato Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiratopass.com. Chad, in terms of a tax plan, which account do you draw from first? Because I got multiple accounts. I got a Roth IRA. I've got an IRA. I've got a 401k. I've got a Roth 401k. I've got cash. When, which, when, which one is my first one to line up when I'm ready? <laughs> gotcha. Well, once you retire, you want to consolidate stuff. So once you retire, you, you know your 401k and your IRAs get combined into one IRA, typically. Your 401k Roth and your Roth IRA can get combined into one Roth IRA, and, and then you've got your taxable brokerage account, and you got some cash, right? Um, and the thing that you don't want to do is just say, well, the IRA is 100% taxable when I take the money out, so I'm just going to let it sit and grow as long as possible because I don't want to pay those taxes. Um, now, while that may be right for somebody that um, barely has enough or not enough to retire, but they're kind of forced into retirement, mm-hmm. that's typically if people are leaving money to their heirs and they have a little bit more than they need to retire, um, that is not the correct approach. Because when you hit the age of 72, you have to start taking money out of your IRAs, even if you don't want to. Your IRAs, 403Bs, 401Ks, all those retirement accounts, you have to. And so you can go from you know several years of retirement all the way to age 72 with very little to no taxes. And then all of a sudden you lose control of your tax bracket. And you have no... you know If, if all you have left is your IRA and you want to go remodel your house or you know fix your roof and you need 25 grand, you got to pull out you know, 40 or 50 to pay the contractor and then pay the taxes on it. So you want to be a lot smarter than that in retirement. That's one of the biggest savings in retirement is to have a tax strategy. Okay. Now I used to think that I could do this all on my own if you could just give me some formulas. And one of the first formulas I learned 100 or 20 years ago was uh, your percentage of stocks in retirement should be your 120 minus your age. So 120 minus 60 when I'm 60, that would give me 40 percent stocks and the rest in bonds, 60 percent bonds. Is that still true or did things change? It's completely reversed. Yeah. So 28 years ago, the typical allocation was 40 percent stocks, 60 percent bonds. And that's because back then we could get, you know, five to six percent on uh, two to five year CDs and annuities fixed, no, no risk. Um, and we could get 5% plus on a laddered bond portfolio where every five years we've got a chunk of money coming due at 5% plus income or more. And that's just not the case. We've been declining rate environment for a long time. Um, while 2022 looks like it's an increasing rate environment, I doubt we get anywhere close to where we were prior to the Great Recession of 2007. Um, so now it's more like a 60-40 split. Right, sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds is more common that I see out there that people are allocated towards, um, because rates are one third on bonds and CDs of what they used to be in two thousand seven. So, you know, a typical allocation it, it really depends on account types and how much you're pulling above your interest and dividends. Um, and the the first part of retirement, y- you have to look at your tax strategy and say, okay. Do you have a mix like Rob Black said he has? He has you know, cash, uh, 
IRAs and 401ks that haven't been taxed, Roths that are tax-free. Um, do you have a mix of all that? And, and if you do, and you run a long-term projection, say, yeah, I am leaving money to my heirs. Well, a lot of times your heirs are going to be at a higher bracket than you are. And also when you look at your cash flow projections and your tax projections after age 72, when you have to take money out, you're going to pay a much higher tax bracket. So in the first part of retirement from age of retirement to through until age 72, people are either pulling money out in small amounts of their IRA to spend it, or if they have more than enough that they need in a higher bracket in the future and their kids at a higher bracket, they're, they're maxing their existing bracket out. They're looking at their tax return, or we are, and hey, you've got 10 grand left at the 22% bracket this year. Let's do a small $10,000 IRA to Roth conversion and pay the taxes now and let it start growing tax-free forever. Speaking of taxes, a lot of people invest with a certain style. Maybe they like a great company, big name. Maybe they like a theme, a demographic. A lot of people don't do tax-efficient investing. Is tax-efficient investing intelligent? Is it something we need to do or can we skip over it? No, it, it, it kind of, it, it becomes really important and it, it kind of ebbs and flows, Rob, because if you remember, it's really why you and I met, right? Okay. I, I was starting to, when I was working in the 90s and we had this big bull market run up, the mutual funds that I was using all the time were starting to build up these, these uh, capital gain exposure inside the fund where managers in the early 90s, picked up shares of like, you know, the, the Apples and the Microsofts. And through the tech boom, those shares had gone up in value in a lot. And in a mutual fund, if you buy into the fund today, and next month they sell a stock that they've been successful for, with for years, it can cause a tax bill for you. And so um, you, you want exposure to certain funds like that, like small cap funds and emerging market funds and international funds that have a lot of turnover. Okay. But you want those to be in your retirement accounts because if they distribute those capital gains in a retirement account, it does not affect you. In a taxable account, you can pay taxes on something without having sold it. So, um, and, and this happened quite a bit in like 1999 and actually last year to 2021 was a huge year where a lot of small cap funds distributed a lot of capital gains that people weren't expecting because they, they had a huge run up from 2020. And by the end of 2021, the, the manager sold and all of a sudden people are getting tax bills on that, even though they didn't pull money out. So that makes sense. So what it looks like is that you have your taxable accounts. That's your own account at, at a brokerage firm uh, or joint with your spouse or in a living trust. Those typically are going to want to own your large cap stocks your large cap and mid cap ETFs or exchange traded funds, which tend to be more tax efficient, and then your tax free bonds, and then your retirement accounts. That's where you're going to want to get exposure to your normal bonds, you know, corporate style bonds, small cap funds, which have a lot of more trading involved, emerging markets, and and international. And uh, so it's tax tax efficient investing is really there's asset allocation and there's asset location. You need the asset allocation for diversification and risk reduction, and you need the asset location for tax reduction. We can squeeze it in in under 15 seconds. Anything that we need to know? Uh, yeah, big ones in retirement. A lot of people give to charity, avoid cash give. You can give money out of your IRA after age 70 and a half and up to 100 grand a year without paying taxes on it, or give highly appreciated shares to your charity and avoid a capital gains tax. Um, we'll do a whole segment on, on gifting strategies because it's really important in retirement. Chad, let's talk about gifting. This is kind of 
tough for me because I'm kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge type. Many wealthy people I know like to support favorite churches, charities, and they can do it through gifts. I'm hearing it's harder and harder to deduct, though. What's going on? Uh, Well, first of all, the 2017 Tax Act raised the standard deduction to to be much higher, right? So when people file their tax returns, Rob, there's a lot of calculations going on in the background, but the systems will say, okay, here's your standard deduction that everybody gets, or you can itemize your deductions, like your mortgage interest, your state and local uh, property taxes and income taxes only up to 10 grand, and some other things like charitable contributions, um, which is more, right? And for a lot of retirees, the majority of them are now taking just the standard deduction. Um, now, if the SALT limitation is repealed at some point, which you know, now I'm not seeing a chance really anytime soon for that, where instead of being limited to 10 grand, you'll be able to write off all of your state and local taxes and property taxes. That might change the game, but right now that's not the case. So a lot of people, um, they're, they're kind of the same tax-wise, but it's not like they're getting a deduction, an extra deduction when they give to charity anymore. So you have to be a little bit more careful now, especially on how you give to charity. And so I always say, avoid cash when you can. If you're a person that has highly appreciated stock mm-hmm. of any kind in a taxable account, now ESPPs, employer stock purchase plans, don't, don't do that. But let's say you got an RSU, invested a couple of years ago, the stock that you own has gone up um, and, and you want to fund your favorite 503C you know, nonprofit, why give cash? You can, you can take, if you want to give a $1,000 gift or a $10,000 gift to charity, you can transfer directly the shares of that stock to your favorite charity. Um, and if you're itemizing, you can deduct it. But either way, you can get rid of the stock in that capital gain. And then you can take your cash and buy that stock back at a higher cost basis, which means you're reducing your taxes in the future. Um, so, you know, if, if typically what I tell people, if it's $500 or more, try to give appreciated stock. We do this for clients all the time. And it's just a you know, signed letter of instruction telling you know, Fidelity or Schwab, that's where we typically, it's Fidelity, TD Ameritrade or Schwab, that's where we manage clients' money for them. It's their accounts where we'll facilitate the transfer of those shares from the brokerage account to the charity. And, it, and it's done with a letter of instruction. And it's, it's actually pretty simple. Um, so especially for people that are no longer itemizing their deductions, and some people may not know, you got to ask your CPA, cash gifts aren't helping you. So do the appreciated stock. But first, if you're 70 and a half or older, Rob, uh-huh. now th- this, is, this is a great thing because this is now permanent. Well, permanent until they change it again, right? So you're, uh, once you hit 70 and a half, even though the new requirement of distribution for your IRAs is age 72, but once you hit 70 and a half, you can do a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA up to $100,000 a year each. So if you're trying to give money to your favorite nonprofit, and that might even be your church, right? Well, you can give that right out of your IRA without paying taxes on it. And that, that's, that's a great deal for pretty much everybody, right? <laughs> so, so think about that. I have clients where we literally have a checkbook on their IRA account. Okay. And they can write checks to their favorite charity and they'll get a 1099R and they got to make sure that it's being reported properly on their tax return as a qualified charitable distribution from their IRA. 
this is fascinating stuff. Your financial IQ is crazy high. Mine's good. I got to think I'm better than the average person listening. You're, you're doing great. So let's say I set up a donor advised fund for 100K. How do I set it up? When does the charity get it? Where does the money set? Gotcha. Well, okay. So I forgot to get to that point on the, the last one, but let, let's say you're, you're not 70 and a half yet. Um, and you're, you know, you've been giving 10 grand a year to charity, but now all of a sudden you're not able to write that off. Um, what you can do is you can say, okay, you know what? I'm always going to give 10 grand to charity. Okay. And so you work with your, your CFP, your tax advisor, and you say, okay, how, how much would I need to give in one single year to get well above the standard deduction so that this contribution to charity is actually a write-off? And so let's say that's 10 years worth. So you could set up what's called a donor-advised fund. Super easy to do at Fidelity or Schwab. Um, and you can take uh, $100,000 worth of appreciated stock. You can transfer it over tax-free into the donor-advised fund, which creates okay. this $100,000 tax deduction that, that you have up to five years to use or write it, write it once, depending on your tax return. And once it's in the donor-advised fund, you can turn around and sell that stock or you know mutual fund or whatever you put in there without paying taxes on it. And then there's no time limit on when you have to give it out to charity. You could still continue to dole it out at $10,000 a year. You could wait 10 years until you dole it out. Um, the, so the account opening is, is fairly simple. Then you journal whatever shares of mutual fund, stock, or ETF you want to put into the donor advised fund. Um, when you sell it, um, this is something we actively manage for clients when the account value is over 250000 But if it's under that amount, Schwab and Fidelity have models that you can just put the money into while you're waiting to give it away to charity. And so we have some younger clients that are funding their donor advised fund every single year because they know when they get to be later in life, they want to make a significant gift somewhere, but they don't know where yet. And so they're just building up this investment account that grows essentially without any taxation. Um, until they're ready to start doling it out at some point in the future. So donor advice funds are great. We really love those. So last question here. Why do you say 70 and a half is such an important number here? Well, that's for the IRAs, right? So IRAs, they've, they've never been taxed. And so if you can take money that's never been taxed and give it to charity without anybody paying taxes on it, that, that's a win. It just, you know, the IRS is just cut out of the picture there. And it doesn't affect your taxes in terms of other issues, which is nice. That can go into that. That can get pretty complicated. But what happened with COVID and the SECURE Act that was passed in 2020 is it made it so that the stretch IRA is gone, Rob. You used to be able to leave money. First of all, if you leave money to your spouse in your IRA, they can just roll it into their own IRA. But when it goes to the kids, now the kids have a 10-year period where it all has to be paid out either over 10 years or all at once in the 10th year, before the 10th year is over, right? And it used to be over their lifetime. So now leaving money to your kids in an IRA is one of the, you know, it's still nice to leave money to somebody, but it's like one of the worst assets to leave if you have other choices. So, because they're going to have to pay the taxes over 10 years. So if you're giving the the IRA money to charity, nobody's paying taxes on it. it. But stocks and real estate that you own, when you die, it gets a step up in basis and your heirs can sell that totally tax free. And Roth IRAs are totally tax-free. So it's, it's, it's a really good planning technique. It's great tax-wise. It's great for the charities and it's great for your kids. I own a couple of rental properties outside of the stock market, outside of cash. It's kind of an asset. 
Um, he owns a couple of rental properties. I own one in the mountains, which is kind of luxury. I own one in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a college town. Uh, what do you own, Chad, and why? I own some office and some residential, and and I do it because I was already you know built up other assets to be financially prepared for real estate. Got it. And I find leveraged real estate more attractive than bonds, but I like stocks better than everything else. I will tell you. Um, and you, you, there's there's been studies done on it, but we can talk about the pros and cons of real estate. We know the prices in certain areas have gone up a lot, especially as interest rates have come down. That's allowed people to buy, you know, have more demand and that pushed prices up, right? But real estate comes with expenses that stocks don't. Ain't that for sure. So the last, yeah, I mean, it's, and yeah, you've, you've had some stories of it. I mean, just the last one that I bought, Mm-hmm. Um, when we were, uh, when we were, it got the property and had, and had the expect inspection, I knew I'd probably have to replace the water heater within a year or two. Yeah. But the day after I closed, I walked into the garage to start prepping the property and there was water everywhere. <laughs> it exploded like the day I bought it essentially. And so all of a sudden, boom, you're putting 1500 bucks into a new water heater. Um, and so if, if you take... It, it, now, let's put the leverage aside for a minute because the okay. only way that's, that real estate keeps up with stocks over a 20, 30-year period is because you can borrow money, buy the asset. So you can take, let's say, a half a million dollars and buy a million-dollar property, let's say, because of a loan. And, and your growth is on the million dollars, even though you've only put in five. And then you're running it. So somebody else is paying that debt off for you and buying that asset for you. And you're taking all the risk. But if you, if you look at it on a cash-on-cash basis, if you have a half a million dollars, you put it into a rental property versus half a million in stocks. But every time you pay property taxes, you put more money into the stock portfolio. Every time you fix a toilet or pay somebody to, to you know, fix the roof or whatever, you put more money into the stock portfolio, um, the stock portfolio is going to crush it over yeah. time. I mean, it's, it's hands down, you're not doing the math unless you realize that. It's the leverage that helps you win in real estate. And that, that requires more risk, which means you have to have other assets and liquidity built up to deal with occupancy issues. You know, you lose a renter for a while to deal with. I mean, you've had one where a renter just, you know, caused a lot of damage, right? right. And you've got to pay for that. Um, so I love it because I love my passive income from my dividends and my stocks that increase over time. And I love my passive income from real estate, which is pretty tax efficient. Um, and, you know, Somebody in my late 40s, I don't really care for bonds right now. So I'm going to accumulate stocks in real estate. That's interesting stuff. Um, like you mentioned, there's some costs that sometimes you just don't expect with real estate. How about the idea of owning publicly traded real estate, like a real estate investment trust, which you know came about in the 1960s, a congressional law that basically commercialized commercial properties and put them in the public market so they could be bought and sold. That seems to be an efficient way for some people to think about real estate. If you can't afford to buy a rental with a 30-year mortgage, or if you can't afford to buy a home, you could still get some exposure to real estate businesses. Yeah. And, and that used to be what we would call a alternative asset up until hmm, several okay. years ago. And then I'd say about 10 years ago, the REITs started showing up in the financial uh, sector of the, uh, the what was then 10 sectors of the S&P 500. Okay. But now the S&P 500 is about... I think last time I looked of in REITs. So if you own the S&P 500, you're going to own some REITs. If you own a mid cap fund and a small cap fund, you're already, you're going to already own some REITs. They're already buying them for you inside that. And there's so many different types of REITs. There's cell phone tower REITs, there's hospital REITs, there's nursing home care REITs, there's apartment REITs. 
you know, REITs that specialize in rental properties. So, so th- those are already out there. And I, I think that's a little bit different than a property that you own directly with leverage, where you've got to buy in a good location, you've got to look at your renters, uh, make sure their credit quality is high. I look at buying rental properties as more of a business versus a liquid portfolio asset. So I separate the two. Interesting. And uh, going back to the REITs that you brought up, senior home REITs probably didn't fare too well during COVID when people were dying in old folks' homes. And the cell towers probably did a little bit better, those type of REITs, when 5G started to roll out. Um, let's talk about what you just said. You treat it as a business versus an asset class. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing a little bit. Um, can an individual own too much real estate where they own like when I hear someone owns 10 rental properties, I'm like, that's kind of crazy. That's a lot of work. Um, but that's the work side of it. How about the investment side? Well, I look at it in terms of P&L, right? Okay. You, you your profit and your loss. And um, then, you know, what's the after-tax income on this? Because when you look at cash flow of real estate, you have your income from your rents and then you have your expenses like property taxes, property manager, uh, you know, whatever HOA fees that you might be paying, things like that. You're not paying taxes on all that because you get to deduct some depreciation over time off of that. Um, so it's, you've got a, a number that you're, you know, here's my income after tax, I guess you could say. Um, and what is, what is the yield on it? And, and most of the time I'm seeing people that have owned properties for a long period of time but haven't increased rents with horrible yields. Like, like yields that are equivalent to a bond fund, right? Yet they're taking so much extra risk. Um, and, and you're seeing that a lot now where that's why a lot of people are 1031 exchanging out of the Bay Area and to other parts of the country where they can kind of reset maybe their depreciation schedule so they get a better tax deduction and get higher income and maybe more growth potential. Um, or they're selling it, or they're getting. There's a lot of people that are getting to retirement. They're like, I don't want to be a manager anymore. Get, even with a property manager, this is becoming a pain in the butt. I've had a huge increase in value of it. My income's not as high as it should be, so I'm either selling it, paying taxes, and moving on, putting it into like a charitable trust, or you can 1031 exchange it into a, a Delaware Series trust uh, situation where you can kind of be a passive investor and, and get the same income. So even at EP Wealth, our planning department has real estate analysis software for those of our clients that have a lot of real estate where they, they, we can identify problems with properties. You know, is this really a good deal? What's the real return? Thanks very much. It's CFP Chad Burton, a certified financial planner with EP Wealth. I'm with EP Wealth. Chad and I have worked together for a long time. He talks life insurance, rental properties, estate plan, stocks, bonds, investments. It's all out there for a financial planner. He's great at what he does. If you want to talk to him, you can find him at chadburton.com. It's chadburton.com. You can also hear his podcast through Apple or the Google Store under New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.